0: You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. I don't know about you, but I love stories, Um, and I've been actually. I've begun reading some of the classics once again because my son, Tofumi, I said, is five and he's quite interested in bedtime stories. He's beginning to understand some of the things that are going on. So we're reading some some of the classics, as I said, you know, uh, Jack and the Beanstalk. That's a person, that's his favorite. Uh, he likes Beauty and the Beast. I still do not understand why. And uh, there's also Little Red, uh, Little Red Riding Hood. But, you know, when we think about stories, sometimes we think of those classic ones. Well, you think of different forms of stories. One of them is the the uh, folk tales. Now, I'm from Nigeria and one of the things uh, sometimes we often don't understand is in Africa, uh, like for instance, there's no, there's no language like Nigerian, right? We do speak English. Why? Because we have different ethnicities. Uh, there are about 250 plus ethnicities in Nigeria. We speak different languages. So before they kind of set up the nation states, we really were different kingdoms. So originally, I'm, 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 I'm a Yoruba person, the Yoruba people of West Africa, and we had, um, growing up, uh, past over the centuries, there were loads of folk tales that were told. And these folk tales were, you know, the preserve of the people. It made us understand the things that were going on in the world. They gave us um, a sense of meaning of what these things were, to explain the mysteries of nature. And now, so let me tell you one of those, my personal favorite. But before I do that, I'm going to indulge the African guy that is here now. Normally, when we're told stories, um, when we're growing up, they would say something like this. Uh, story, story. And then the people that went to hear the story will say, story. And then they would say, once upon a time. And then you would say, time, time. So it's story, story. You respond with story. And once upon a time, you, re- uh, once upon a time you, re- you respond with time, time. So I want to read you guys a story. I'm sure you'll be a wonderful audience. So when I say, uh, story, story, story. Once upon a time, 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 two women quarreled. And one of them went out secretly at night and dug a deep pit in the, the, in the middle of the path leading from our enemy's house to the village. Sorry, the title of this is Why Women Have Long Hair. All right. so two women quarreled and one of them went out secretly at night and dug a a deep pit in the middle of the path leading from her enemy's house to the village well. Early next morning, when all were going to the well for water with jars balanced on their heads, this woman fell into the pit and cried loudly for help. Her friends ran to her and, seizing her by the hair, began to pull her out of the pit. To their surprise, her hair stretched as they pulled. And by the time she was safely on the path, her hair was as long as a man's arm. This made her very much ashamed, and she ran away and hid herself. But after a while, she realized that her long hair was beautiful, and then she felt proud and scorned all the short-haired women jeering at them. When they saw this, they were consumed with jealousy and began to be ashamed of their short hair. We have men's hair, they said to one another. How beautiful it would be to have long hair. So one by one they jumped into the pit and their friends pulled them out by the hair. And in this way they and all women after them had long hair. The point of the story is if you have short hair dig a pit and jump into it. <laughs> now we know that that isn't factual. And most folk tales weren't factual. The point was they were trying to convey a certain truth. And in that we are voracious consumers of stories. And with stories, we're trying to convey something. So think of three uses of stories. Entertainment. We do, we see that a lot with the series and, and movies that we watch. I think designated survivor is a wonderful thing. I don't know how many people think so. But it's great. It's all entertainment. We don't even know whether those things happen. But it's nice. It's just nice fun, right? But also moral lessons. Quite often we tell a story and the next thing we say is, and the moral of the story is, And then you think of advertisements, right? And basically, the advertisements are telling one story. You're this without this product. But with it, you can become this. Because you're worth it. (laughs) The force and power behind stories is really that they make statements more meaningful. Also, they cause us to empathize more with people. Or sometimes, they even force us into heroic actions. When we envisage what we think could be a possibility... Our present is then shaped by our future, or what we envisage is the future. Now, the Bible latches on to all of these uses because stories are important. Now, in fact, contrary to what is often thought, sometimes, or practiced, the Bible is not primarily a law book, though it contains laws. It's not a pragmatic book, though it contains proverbs. The Bible is not a philosophical book, though it contains philosophical musings. In fact, the Bible is not a secret code book, though it contains... No, no, I don't think it contains any secret codes. Just forget about that. Obama is not the Antichrist, all right? So, no. The primary genre of the Bible is its narrative or story. It's not just a compilation of stories. It's one big story, what some people call a meta-narrative, and I would say it's the story of all stories. Now, unlike folk tales, it's a story that's also rooted in history. Now, here's something we mustn't also forget. With the narrative and the story that is being told in the Bible, God provides to us the most important, meaningful, and best news for your life and mine. It's called the gospel. So today I want us to look at this message called the gospel story, and I want us to consider it in three parts. Our stories, God's story, and then the question, whose story? Our stories, God's story, and then the question, Whose story? So let's think the first point. Our stories. Now if you notice, Cleopas and his body on the road to Emmaus, it says in verse 17b that they are downcast. They're downcast. And in verse 22, it says that they're amazed. Amazed. Now why? Why are they downcast and why are they amazed? Well, really, we can put it this way, stuff has happened. Stuff has happened. If you look at verse 14, it says, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Or even in verse 18, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now, what had happened? Well, we're told in verse 20, it's about their hero, Jesus of Nazareth, as you see in 19. And in verse twenty, we're told that this hero, Jesus of Nazareth, has just been executed by the authorities like a mere criminal or an accursed person. Now, if I told you that, you probably think, "Well, okay, I understand that. I understand why they're downcast. You know, someone that meant something to them has been, you know, he's been he's been executed. Fine, and and that be you, you know, that kind of understanding would be sufficient." Or oh, well, it will be okay, but not sufficient. You see, for you to fully understand and track with them why they are really downcast, you need to understand the statement about this person who has been executed, you want to put it within the context of the story that has been going on. You see, we don't really fully understand things if we don't understand the story that is a, the statement is embedded in. So let's think about this. When we think about stories, we think about a backstory. And a front story. Now, a back story is probably something we can call history, right? The history of something. And then the front story we can call hope. And what we're saying is that you don't really understand people that well if you don't understand what it is they've been through and what it is they're looking forward to. You see, when you know what someone's experience and background has been, but also their aspirations in life. You start to understand why they do what they do. Let me give you an example. There was a film called John Q. I don't know if any of us saw it. It was in 2002. It was starring Denzel Washington. Now, if you went to the end of the movie, what you would see is that a man has been convicted for kidnapping a number of people. Now, when I say that, you think, well, he's convicted. He broke the law. Kidnapping is a very bad thing. He must be a very bad man. Well, you know, there is some sense of truth in that, but you won't fully understand it if you don't put it within the context of the story. So let's think of the backstory. What's the backstory? Well, the backstory is that he's the father of a little boy who has just been diagnosed with an enlarged heart. And because he tried to get a transplant for the boy, but because his HMO insurance couldn't cover it, then he decided to do what he had to do. He took the emergency room hostage until they performed the surgery of the little boy. That's the back story. And all of a sudden, he doesn't look too much like a bad man. Because what's the front story? Of course, the front story is that he hopes that his son would outlive the disease. Now, again, kidnapping is still wrong. But we start to empathize a little bit more. Dare I say that some of us would probably do that for our only children. You see, the thing about statements of truth is that when we put it in context of what has gone before and what we're hoping for, all of a sudden they have much more meaning. So I don't know what statement of truth about your life here is true. But I can tell you some from my city, the city of Lagos, especially as we think, as we plant our church and we're trying to, you know, confront the things that are in front of us. But let me give you one statement. If I said to you, people work tirelessly or even slavishly. I mean, some people wake up 5 o'clock in the morning and get out of their house 5 o'clock in the morning, don't return until 10.30 p.m. at night. That seems crazy. And you wonder, why would anyone want to subject themselves to that? Surely their work to them means more to them than it should be. But then if you consider the backstory, that some of these people have poor socioeconomic backgrounds. 67% of our city is poor. And some people, wealth is a primary source of value. They're chasing what you call the Legotian dream. And their front story is a certain income or bank account balance will eradicate poverty forever, leading to freedom and perpetual happiness. Now, you go back to the statement, and it doesn't seem like something that is so far-fetched, does it? I'll give you another one and I've met this so much with counseling, but you find a lot of people stay in abusive relationships and marriages. I mean, some of them is really terrible stuff. Emotional, mental abuse, sometimes physical abuse. And the problem is you know some of these people as your friends, and you're saying, Why do you keep staying in this relationship or staying in this marriage? Surely this is hurtful for you. You keep calling, you spend three hours bawling your eyes out, and yet you go back to the same person. Surely this is incredulous and crazy, we say. But then you understand the backstory. Probably that person was their first love. And they grew up always saying, the first person I date is the person I'm going to marry. Or it could be that children are now involved, and that complicates matters. Or the marriage is a source of their identity. Or even worse, is that that person also suffered a broken family background. They don't want to see that repeated in their lives. And then when you consider the front story, they're thinking in their minds and they're hoping that probably he or she will change. Or at least, even if they don't change, the children would then have secure futures because the abusive person in the relationship is the breadwinner of the house. And so this is what the stories do for us and the statements and the presence of our lives. But here's where the problem starts and where things start to unravel. It's that our stories become challenged. You see, disaster strikes and all of a sudden those narratives that we set out for ourselves don't make sense. Again, consider the disciples. In verse 19b, we see, and verse uh, 21, in verse 19b, we see their backstory. What is it? He was a prophet. This is about Jesus of Nazareth. They said he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And what was their front story? Verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Here is the person who was powerful in word and deed. He was a prophet. And prophets don't die in such a shameful way. They'd pinned all their hopes in him because Israel was under occupation, Israel, their land, uh, their their, their, their nation was under occupation of the Romans, and they'd hoped that he was the one that was going to bring about the redemption of Israel. But guess what? He's dead. You see, what had happened in the present confronted their understanding of their backstory and dashed the expectations of their front story. Translate that, it means that their world has just been rocked. And it could be that many of us now, stuff has happened. Our world has just been rocked. Our stories are being challenged. The job that we got is not actually fulfilling us in the way we thought it was going to be. The marriage that we're in is not going in the direction of progress that we would always dreamed it was going to be. The candidate that we voted for either did not win the election or the one who won the election is not delivering on their promises. And it could also be that you're someone who is in ministry and things, people are just not being converted or people are just not changing the way you always thought it was going to be. Your world has been rocked. Your story has been challenged. Or it could even be much worse. You're currently living in your front story... All the things that you hope for has actually come to pass and you're still left unsatisfied. You see, the problem with living for our own story primarily is this. Our histories are not impeccable and we can't guarantee the future outcomes. We come with a lot of baggage and the things that we hope for, we only hope for once we get thrown into them, we find that it keeps being a moving target. So those are our own stories. There's another story that I want us to consider, and that is God's story. So that's the second point, God's story. Now, what we find in the Bible is that the God, the Christian God, is the ultimate storyteller. He's the grand storyteller. Now, this would make sense because if we follow the Christian pattern, this God created human beings in his own image. Now, if he is a storyteller, it would make sense that these human beings also become storytellers, or at least stories resonate with them, just like many of us. We do resonate with stories. Now, this God is a grand storyteller, and he's telling a story that is rooted in history. But like with all stories, there is a statement that he's trying to pass across to us. So it's important that we consider his story. Now, there's a a, a theologian at Duke University. His name is Jeremy Begby. He's also an accomplished musician and musicologist. And he rightly points out that the basic underlying structure to most human stories is this. Four parts, home, tension, resolution, and home again. Home, tension, resolution, and home again. We start and we end up where we started, but almost in a slightly different way. It's the once upon a time at the beginning, and home again is, and they lived happily ever after. Now, we see that um, in many movies, don't we? I mean, this whole, we start uh, start um, and end in the same place, but actually we go through a twist that leaves us at the edges of our seats, which is eventually resolved, and then we get back to where we're going. For instance, take for instance, many of you would not have had the blessed uh, privilege of experiencing this. But we in Africa, especially in Nigeria, we did. We had so many. Growing up, I watched so many 1980s grade B action movies. Uh, there were American movies. This is not Fast and Furious stuff. I mean, that's so overrated. I mean, this was just, it was out of this world. It was, it was, it was, it was Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, whoever saw Arnold Schwarzenegger and Commando, Right? Yeah, he, he wants to forget that kind of movie. But it goes something like this. Guy is such an ordinary guy, but guy meets girl. Girl is beautiful, guy likes girl. Girl likes guy, guy has a family. And then, for some reason, some bad guy comes, kills his family, and takes girl away. So what's guy going to do? He can't face the bad guy, but somehow, in his wandering, he meets a Japanese sensei. All right, and, and, and the Japanese sensei, you know he, 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 he wants him to train him But the, but the guy is absolute crap he, he, he messes up on all the different tests And he wants to give up Because he thinks that the sensei is actually is, he's, he's, He hates him so much But the sensei can see that he's got a little light in him And he thinks he can bring out that light So he stays at it And months go on, and months go on And all of a sudden, the guy's getting, getting better He's getting better, he's getting better And One day he goes out, just as he's beginning to bond with the sensei, he goes out and then he comes back and he finds out that bad guy has also killed the sensei. Oh dear. So what does he do? Now he's about to go and revenge. He wants to go and save and get the girl. So he gets like a truck, well, three truckloads of ammunition all by himself, but he doesn't put them in trucks. He somehow puts them in a backpack. And he gets to the headquarters of the bad guy. There are 2,000 men there. And within 10 minutes, he kills all of them. Never mind that they keep firing at him. The bullets somehow always dodge. And then he shoots one bullet and he kills 200 people. So he kills 200 to 2,000 people in 10 minutes. And then there's the last showdown. It's him and the bad guy. The girl is somewhere there tied to something. I don't know. And she's screaming. And then for 15 minutes... You know, he killed, he killed 2,000 people in 10 minutes. But this one goes for 15 minutes with the bad guy. And 13 of those 15 minutes, the bad guy's winning. He's winning. And just about, as about, he's about to kill him, all of a sudden, there's a vision of his sensei. It comes to him. And then he starts to rise in true Hulk Hogan fashion. And he rises and he rises. And eventually, he kills the bad guy. And then he gets the girl, and the credit starts to roll. Now, what has happened? Forget the terrible acting and the terrible storytelling. We've gone from home to home again. He started with the girl, and he's back with the girl again. Except that now there there was a twist. There was eventually a resolution, and they lived happily ever after. You see, this is what happens when Jesus points these disciples back to the Bible, as we see in verse 24 and verse 44b. He starts to tell them the storyline of the Bible. You see, the Bible also has four parts. We can take it as creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. New crea- uh, we start at creation, we end in new creation. The same thing, home and home again. It starts with Genesis 1 verse 1, where it says that God created the heavens and the earth. And at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, one you say, we see that I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, were we to jump from the creation to new creation, and especially when you consider in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, that God created man in his image and told them to be fruitful and to multiply, if you jump from just uh, from creation to new creation, what you'd see basically is that they've multiplied themselves. You know, God created a perfect world, but it was incomplete. He had two people. He told them to fruitful and multiply, make culture of the world, make something out of all the raw materials that I've given to you. And by the time you get to Revelation 21, that's exactly what has happened. Now, but if you're just able to, if we just jump from there to there, then what would have happened in the middle would just simply have been an issue of multiplication. Adam and Eve had children; those children had children. I'm sure you're thinking, now, how did they have children? Well, look, the children married themselves, and they had children. Just get over it. <laughs> but if that were the case, then the Bible would really be a small book. It would just be multiplication. Now, the last time I checked, the Bible is a very huge book. And the reason for that is because we do have attention. In Genesis 3, it's introduced. There's an antagonist, a talking snake who then tricks, deceives the man and the woman to make them think that they could be like God instead of the creator God, and then they rebelled against him. Now, that caused to multiplication of sin. Their children didn't like each other. One killed the other one. Eventually, that multiplied. More people, as the people multiplied, the sin multiplied. At one point, God actually wipes out all of the people of the world. He leaves eight people, and then they start again. They multiply, but then the sin continues to multiply. If at one point you're dealing with individual sin, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 11, you're dealing with concerted systemic sin in the Tower of Babel. So what does God do? He judges. But when he judges, they disperse. He he judges them by giving them different languages so that they can't work together in unity again. But they disperse. And now we have different nations. Different nations, nonetheless, they have sin with them. So what's going to happen? Well... If you had the different nations unseen in Genesis 11, by Genesis 12, God starts to unravel things. He calls a guy called Abraham, and he says, now, those cursed nations, in you, those cursed nations will be blessed. Well, then what happens? Abraham wanted a child. He couldn't get a child. For 25 years, he held on to God's promise. Eventually, he's almost 100. His wife is 90. They give birth to a child. That child marries a good girl. But before that, he was meant to kill him. But no, he didn't kill him. So he marries a good girl. Then he has twins. The twins don't really like each other. But eventually, they reconcile. The bad one of the the kids, of the twins, has 12 children. The 12 eventually become 70. One of the 12 children, uh, 12, 10 of the 12 children had sold one into slavery. He becomes prime minister in a nation. Those 70 move into that nation. They enjoy themselves. 400 years after, a king comes who doesn't like them because they've multiplied. Now there are millions of people and they become slaves. What's going to happen? Well, eventually God delivers them. They go through a sea. They eventually enter a land that God had promised them. They decide to do things that they are not meant to do. And that's because they don't have a king. God eventually gives them a king. He's a bit of a stud, but he's actually terrible. So God kicks him out. He brings in another guy. That guy is a a guy after God's own heart. Even though he murders, he commits adultery. I wonder what it would be if he wasn't a guy after God's own heart. But then he also has kids. The kids are often bad. There's a succession of the kingly lineage. Most of the kings after him are really bad. A few good ones. But the sin multiplies so much that God kicks them out of the land. He kicks them out of the land. They now start going into different nations. Empires start to rise. One empire falls. The other one rises. They're still there. Eventually, an empire comes and some of them are able to return back to the land. But they don't have a king. And until they come to the point God doesn't speak to them for almost 400 years, they have no king for well over 700 years, and God then comes to them. And that gives us the context here, because those same people are now under Roman occupation, and these disciples had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel, and he's dead. That's why they're downcast what's going to happen to the story verse 26 did not the messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory what jesus was telling them was guys don't you understand this is part of the story this is where resolution meets tension the messiah had to go through two things he had to suffer that so he died But the prophets didn't only say that he was going to suffer, they also said that he was going to rise again. And this, he says, is the good news the gospel. You see, because if you have the entire biblical narrative and you don't have the statement of the gospel, we've been wasting time with the narrative. Don't miss the point. The narrative is not the gospel, but you cannot understand the gospel properly if you don't have the narrative. Jesus says that all that was meant to be fulfilled about him is in his death and his resurrection. And through all of this, we can then conclude, what is the statement of the gospel? Let me give you one definition. It's the news that the incarnate, crucified, and risen Messiah, Jesus Christ, is now the Lord and the impending judge of the world. That's the news. So after this death and resurrection, he returns. He's going to come back again and then fulfill home again. So that's God's story. Which leads me to my third point. We've come to a point where we then have two stories. And quite often, I have to be honest with you, these stories do clash. And they clash on the decision of which one we tend to make the larger narrative. You see, really, the larger narrative we identify with shapes our own personal stories. And can I tell you this? Our story determines who our God is, and our good news determines who our Savior is. In my city and context, the Lagosian dream, because, well, is largely about progress... And we want to see this progress in economic, societal, and marital terms. But well, that's the God there. And often, who do you think then the Savior is? Well, people that would give you wealth, a great status, or a spouse that would get married to you. You see, if you're going to plug into God's story, he asks us to respond in two ways. One is change, and the other one is reconfiguration. Let's take the first one. And with this first one, I'm really appealing, and am speaking to those of us here who probably will not be Christians. Maybe you were invited here today, maybe you've been considering the Christian faith, and you're exploring different questions, scientific questions, and many of those questions, and please, you should do so. And I think there are great answers out there. But I also want to tell you this, even if you get answers to all of those things, you can't be a Christian without what we see in verse 32. It's called the burning heart. What do I mean by that? You may be here and you've been serving many of these other gods, whether it's progress or comfort or the American dream or it's art. But you're tired now of being your own savior or depending or looking to someone else, whether it's your spouse or your boss. Why? Because the story that you've adopted has become bad news for you. Why is it bad news? Because you've not been able to attain to it and you cannot guarantee that you would ever attain to it. Or it could be that now you're living in the reality of the good news, but you are disappointed by it because the satisfaction it's giving you has become less than average. Now, if that's you here, can I ask you something? Why don't you change your story? Change it to God's own story. Yes, God's story says, as the confessions that we actually made today, that you have rebelled against him. What, what is that rebellion? It's that you chose your own story above his own story, or instead of his own story. And the actions that come out of those, of adopting that story, is basically what we call sin. Now, you think, you say, well, I know that, but the problem is now I'm under the judgment of this God, and I cannot stand that judgment, and that is why I have to run away from him. Can I say that's the biggest mistake you'd make? It's the biggest mistake you'd make because... That same God, under whose judgment you are, is also offering the forgiveness of those sins. Why does he do it? He does it because he loves you. But you're not lovely, precisely. The gospel is this, that whilst we were yet sinners, whilst we didn't have our act together, God still loved us. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's saying, can't you see how much I love you? You don't have to fix yourself up. You see, with your own story, you cannot guarantee the ending. And you come with a less than stellar past. In this story and the good news, God offers his son who comes with an impeccable history. But he takes your punishment and gives you his own blessings. And I can guarantee you that what he offers... The end of that story, he will be able to give. Why? Because he did not stay dead. He rose again. If you adopt this story, I can also guarantee you this. What happens to your smaller stories? Because those smaller stories still exist. We still go to work. We still raise our families. But if you fail at those stories, you will not be crushed. If you succeed at those stories, you will not be disillusioned. Why? Why? Because you're guaranteed success in now a larger story that you'll never be disappointed by. Is your heart burning? Well, if it is, why don't you come to God through Jesus Christ? Well, the second one is that as professing Christians, we're not exempt. We too need the burning heart. Don't forget that these guys were disciples of Jesus. Now, many of us, we may not know it, but we give tacit approval to God's story. It kind of works out this way. God's story is there, but that story becomes smaller and subsumed within our own larger or our culture stories. You see, with the disciples, as we see again in verse 19 and verse 21, they saw Jesus as dead, and because Jesus had been unjustly killed... They had subsumed that Jesus was an innocent bystander in what the chief priests and the Romans had actually done. Poor Jesus, they thought. And poor us. But Jesus was no innocent bystander in his death. It was precisely fulfilling God's plan. When we start to take our own story or make our own stories larger than God's own story, we're saying that God should become an a bystander in our stories. We don't get rid of God. We just domesticate him. He becomes the genie that if we rob in the right way, will give us all we want. You know what genies are? Genies are all powerful, but they're also slaves. In other words, we don't deny God. We just recreate him in our own image. But God says the best thing for us to do is to reconfigure. By that we mean, what does it mean to grow as a Christian? It's not just to obey a certain set of rules. No, to grow as a Christian is to increasingly make God's story larger in your life and make your story smaller in that same context. I know the question you're asking. Wouldn't my story and ambitions change? Absolutely, and joyfully so. You see, God always has a better plan for us, much more than our culture determines. And even when we don't actually know this, we know that we can trust him. What is his own plan for us if we do receive Jesus? Well, verse 48 and 49 says, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. You have been witnesses of this. He calls us to be witnesses. And he promises us to give us power. Now, what do I mean? As a witness, it means that we tell about what we've experienced. Um, My favorite restaurant now in in Austin is a place called Tycoon, right? Am Am I correct? The food is excellent. I mean, it is just, it's to die for. I know some of us here, probably we go to a restaurant that we like, or we listen to an album that has just come out. What is the next thing we do when we've enjoyed it so much? Do we keep it to ourselves? No, because the natural thing for us to do is to call others to come and hear or experience what we've experienced. Come and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. And if you taste and see, why aren't you telling others about him? No, God calls us to live a different life, to to tell of his story, his savior, and his good news. But that's not all that it means to be a witness. You see, God says that not only will you tell, but I will give you power to be witnesses. In other words, he gives us the power to live in a way that confronts our culture and the culture's narratives that are destructive. When we receive this power in the Holy Spirit, we become less tyrannical as leaders. We become husbands, loving husbands, that lay our lives down for our wives, even when they annoy us, which happens often. Um, We become better workers, more productive workers. We become more generous and kinder people. We become people much more secure in our gospel value. Can I suggest to you that the world needs people like that? You see, the story of the gospel provides us with a backstory and hope that leads us to world-changing action because this hope is eternal and cannot be taken from us. Will you change? Will you reconfigure? Let us pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.